Mark chapter 2. I'll mention a couple of things to you and then we'll get into what the Lord would have for us today. If, well, I'll tell you what, when you got your uh, handout, when you came through the door today, you've probably got a green envelope. You got those, hold those up. No, didn't get one, did. You're not willing to hold it up. All right. The green envelope, you'll notice on the right-hand side of it, it says help group. Ministry. Specifically, what this is for is yesterday, for example, we did, we had our monthly help group where we hand out food and, and clothes. And Chad, correct me, we had 330 something families that we gave food and clothes to yes, which is tremendous. And you guys helped make that possible by your giving. So here's what we'd like to do that's what the green envelope is for. Last year, because we could not find, to be honest, I made three trips yesterday to, to uh, Superlow, I think's the name of it, on Covington Pike, and I bought every chicken they had in the building. Third time when I showed up, I told the guy, I'm back! He said, this is literally what he said, we don't have any more chicken. And I said, oh, we're going to find some somewhere. And we went, I had everything, I'd already bought everything in the back room. And I said, let's just go to the case and see what's in those big refrigerated cases out in the middle. And they had another three or four cases, I said, load them up. I want them, baby. So I bought, it, bought everything they had, and we just had enough for, for all our family. So, looking toward uh, Christmas, that's what the green envelope is for. Chris Ellison, who is incredible at, at just what he does, but he's found a deal where somebody will sell us the meat and hold it for us till our problem to pass is we had no place to freeze it, and so we would have you guys buy them and then bring them to us that Friday or Saturday. Well, he found a guy that will sell them and hold them for us for Christmas. So if you would like to help specifically toward that, that's what the green envelope is for. The money that's put in there will all go toward the help ministry for December for families uh, getting uh, not only the food that we give them at Christmas. And we can buy, it's a, it's a lot better for you to donate money than it is to donate food because we can buy it. We're the largest distributor of the Mid-South Food Bank. Literally, at times, they don't have enough food for us. And International Paper, I think, recently gave them like a million and a half dollars. But in their wisdom, they're going to use it for something else. That's okay. We, uh, anyway, we, a lot of times we buy everything they got. So uh, it's just easier, better. We can buy it for 10 cents on the dollar what you're paying for it. So uh, we're going to start selling it to you. That's what we ought to do. And... So if you want to donate for the help ministry to get that food, that's what the green envelope is for. Now, having said that, let me say one other thing. I know a number of you were there yesterday, and, and many of you have come on a regular basis to help with, with the help group ministry on those Saturdays. And you know, I got there yesterday about, uh, I don't know, about a quarter to ten. And I'm pulling in the parking lot. People were in line. If you've been to Bartlett, they're in line at that drive through all the way back to where the trees are in the middle of the parking lot to get in. This was before we opened. And it just, and then I get in there and I'm walking around. I had people coming up to me saying, what can I do? What can I do? They, we had more people than we needed, but there's never, it, 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 if nothing else, and I'm being accused of just showing up and looking good, which I realize I, 
That's my gift. But if nothing else, if you just walk around and see what's going on, you'll be blessed. And every now and then, just go up to somebody and say, how can I pray for you? I think I mentioned it to you last week, and it'll break your heart. But it will remind you of how good our God is. And we don't give them trash. Uh, they get a lot. You go up to that clothes closet, and I'm up there looking. I go up every time just mess around because that's what I do. And I go, I go up there and say, where's the men's department? They, I mean, people, they're not, it's nice clothes that we're in. They're, they're so, when you walk, like walking them in the elevator to go down or to their car, and they're like, they're like, I've never had clothes this nice. It'll break your heart. But you make that possible. So that's what the green envelope is for. And as pastor, your pastor, just let me say thank you for showing up. Uh, last month, had you not shown up, we'd have been in real trouble because there were a number of us significant number that were worshiping Jesus in Destin last month. We're, we're not here. So thank you for showing up every month, but particularly yesterday. Um, something even more important, probably the most important thing you will ever hear, so stay focused. It's that time of year. We're going to Christmas City. I know your heart's going thump, thump. There is a God. So December 9th is when it all happens. How many of you have never been, have no idea what Christmas City is and you've never been? Oh, give your hearts to Jesus. I know Peter will. And come and, and go with us Friday night, December 9th. We're going to meet here at 6 o'clock, get on the bus and ride out there. And if you've never eaten uh, concessions in a hollowed out school bus with an astroturf floor and a kerosene heater, you haven't lived and uh doesn't cost you a cent unless you want to make a donation once you get out there to pay for their electricity bill, which you see will be enormous. But if you want to go seriously, I need tell tell me or my lovely wife Mary so we can write your name down the list. The bus is quickly filling up. Who, who said that? <laughs> that hurt. Ella, would you come take that knife out of my back? Quickly filling up. See, Ella. We got one right here who wants to join. No. You don't have to get up. You're okay. She wants to sign up even though her mama won't go. I'll take her because that's the kind of grandfather I am. But anyway, if you'd like to go, it's, uh, it's like going back in time. You will maybe like it. I don't know. I like it. I know others do not. I understand that. But they'll get saved. All right. Peter, my daughter, other people like that. Next Sunday night, if you can, I know uh, we try not to make a lot of announcements, but every now and then I get carried away. So, next Sunday night, right here and out front, particularly in the front of the building, we can use some men. I'll be here, but we need men. We're going to decorate the building for Christmas, put our tree up, and and, uh, if Dan and Ronnie don't show up, we can't have lights in front of the stage because nobody knows else can get them to work. But we've got wreaths out front we need to hang, and uh, it's just kind of fun. We hang out, play Christmas music, and, and um, I'll wear my Elvis costume if necessary, sing, sing Blue Christmas. And uh, next Sunday night, I don't know the exact time. I think anybody know? Good. Russ will tell us. But next Sunday night, I think, I, I think we decided it's, um, it's 5.30 or 6. I can't remember the exact time, but we're going to decorate our facilities. All right, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you'll notice this particular handout that you've got, look at the top of it. 
We're looking at the lordship of Jesus Christ, what that means. Specifically in the context of the book of Mark, as the servant savior, we, we already looked at his introduction to the world and who he is and what he's going to do. And now, starting in chapter 2, you're beginning to see him proclaim and show that I am Lord over certain things. So last week, we looked at number one on your handout, that Jesus the Christ, the servant Savior, is Lord over sin. And we saw an illustration where he, he forgives and he heals a paralytic to prove his authority to the Pharisees and that God might be glorified. So I want you to look for just a moment in Mark chapter 2, down to verse, at verse 10. Mark 2.10, Christ is speaking, but that you may know that the Son of Man, focus on that phrase for a moment, we're going to come back to it, that you may know that the Son of Man has power or authority, that's really the word, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and he went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And that's what we dealt with last week. And just one thing I want to say as we transition into what we're going to look at today, his lordship over other areas. That he's healing, the greatest miracle he performed was forgiving the sins of the paralytic. And then he physically heals him to illustrate to the Pharisees or to prove to them that he has the authority, that he can, yes, I can heal, but that's not the reason I'm here. I'm here to proclaim to you forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. But so that you'll know that I have the authority to do that, I'm going to heal this guy. But here's what I want you to notice, and then we're going to talk about it for just briefly and then move on. Verse 10, that you may know that, quote, the Son of Man. That phrase, the Son of Man, is very illustrative and very important in the life of Jesus Christ. It's the title he uses when he's referring to himself the most. It's used 14 times just in the book of Mark. Twelve of those times occur after Peter confesses that you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Don't, that's important. You are the Messiah, and then Jesus really begins to refer to himself as the Son of Man. So what I want you to note is here, he's saying that specifically to the Pharisees who were experts in the law, the prophets, and the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. They were experts in that. They knew everything there was to know about it. A lot of it they had memorized and they taught it all the time. It was their life. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but in Daniel chapter 7, that great book, about the sovereignty of God, who controls kings, who has authority over whoever is in power. The Bible says this, Daniel was speaking, I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and that's God, and they brought him near to, before him. Then to him was given notice, to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, that of the Son of Man, is an everlasting or eternal dominion. It will not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now that is the theme of the book of Daniel. It's the theme of prophetic 
proclamations throughout the Old Testament. It's the theme of history that the Son of Man, well, the reason I want you to see that phrase, that Jesus uses it to refer to himself in front of the Pharisees because the Pharisees knew Daniel 7 better than you know anything in your life. And they knew it was a prophetic reference to the coming of the Messiah who would rule, who would have an eternal dominion, that he would be God in the flesh. And Jesus intentionally uses that phrase to the Pharisees in front of, as he heals people, as he's going through his public ministry, to say, I am the son of man that Daniel was talking about. That's me. I am the one with the eternal dominion. I am the one with the everlasting kingdom. I am the one who has authority over all other kingdoms. When Daniel spoke these words, Babylon was in power. And then Medo-Persia was in power. And then Persia was in power. And then you had Greece. And then you had Rome. When Alexander the Great was, was just going throughout the world, conquering everyone, no one ever thought Greece would fall. But they did. When the Roman Empire came on the scene, no one ever thought the Roman Empire would fall. But they did. And that's what the book of Daniel is about, is that there will be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, but there's, when it's all said and done, that there'll only be one kingdom, and that's that of the Most High God, that's a quote from Daniel, and that of the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus begins to say, I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am the I am. And the Pharisees don't like it. They clearly accuse him of blasphemy. We'll see that several times. You've already seen it once. And they want him gone because he threatens their power, their authority, and he says, I am God. So, that's number one. Jesus is Lord over the forgiveness of sins. And you have to understand why that's significant. Anybody, a doctor can heal you temporarily. You'll get better. But only God can heal you permanently. Even physical healings, we talked about this last week. Jesus heals his paralytic, but at some point in time, what happened to that paralytic? He died. So the most significant moment that happened in his life was not that he was healed of paralysis, but that his sins were forgiven. So the, as I said last week, the greatest miracle God will ever perform in your life, my life, or anybody else's life is to forgive them of their sins. And who can do that? Only the Son of Man can do that. Only God can do that. Only God has the capacity, the authority, and the power to forgive sins. So secondly, as he deals with these Pharisees, go to chapter 2, verse 13. So he then says to them, I'm not only Lord over sin, but I'm Lord over self-righteousness. That's what we're going to see over the next section of the book of Mark. He said, I can offer you forgiveness of sins, but I also can offer you fulfillment in life. And I think sometimes we really miss this because of self-righteousness and religion in general. So many times, even in the church, we forget that the significance of being a Christian is not just that you die and go to heaven one day. Hey, that's great. That's the eternal significance, and that's the most important thing that will ever happen in your life. But beyond that is that the daily moment-by-moment living that you get to have where you have fulfillment in life. No matter what you're doing for a living, that you get up every day realizing, I'm a child of God. I'm an ambassador of the King of Kings. These are not my phrases. These are biblical phrases to describe you. I'm a priest 
unto others. I'm a priest of God. I'm part of that great kingdom. I'm part of the bride of Christ. I'm an heir with Jesus Christ, a joint heir. All of those things. You have fulfillment in life because Jesus is Lord over self-righteousness. You see, the Pharisees determined righteousness based on their own view. And that's what everybody else in the world does. Outside those of us who surrender to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, here I am, use me. Lord, here I am, I am a living sacrifice for you. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies, and that means everything that is you, body, soul, spirit. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Worship is me saying to God, here I am, use me. I want to glorify you. Remember, Jesus just healed the paralytic to glorify God. No other reason. So they would see who God really was. That's what it means. So I get fulfillment every day knowing that's who I am. And only Jesus Christ can offer me that. Because the Pharisees, and again, every other religion except those who surrender to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, here I am, live the Christ life through me. Everybody else is trying to earn their righteousness, however they view it. I do the best I can, and one day, hopefully, I get eternal life. Maybe I get my karma. Maybe I get it all straightened out. I keep coming back until I get it right, or I get nirvana, or whatever you think the afterlife holds. Those of us who surrender to Jesus Christ say, I trust you. The, the righteous live by faith. Lord, you gave your life. You paid the price. I surrender to you. I'm yours. You have fulfillment in life. So the context is starting in chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 6, is Jesus deliberately provokes the status quo of the Pharisees to teach them his lordship and the freedom that we have in Christ over tradition, ritual, self-righteousness. He's going to go out of his way. We're going to see several incidents. He goes out of his way to show them that the way you're doing it does not work. I offer freedom. I offer fulfillment. I offer forgiveness. Everything that man is looking for, I offer. What you offer is a burden. What you offer is a weight. What you offer is a beat down. What I offer is to set people free. Why? Because he's the truth. Because he can set people free. So this first example, we're going to see the physician dealing with six sinners. The physician dealing with six sinners. Look at verse 13. He went out again, Jesus did, he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him. We keep seeing it over and over, wherever he goes. Even when he goes out in the wilderness to try to be alone, what happens? Somebody gets on Snapchat, or somebody gets and says, I found him! You like it when I use, I don't even know what that is, but I thought I could throw that word in and look cool. Somebody found him, and so they let everybody know where he is, and they flocked to him. Why? Man, he healed that paralytic, and he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and he did, he cast demons, that's the demons out of my mother-in-law, and I think anybody could do that. He did, that was a joke, he did, he did stuff no, we've never seen before. I gotta meet this guy, maybe he'll do it for me. They just flock to him everywhere he goes this first year of his public ministry. So here he is again, verse 13. He goes out to by the sea. Who knows why he went out there? And all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. So now we know what he's doing. Verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose 
and followed him. Levi, also known as Matthew, Levi short for Leviticus. How'd you like to have that for your name? Leviticus Lockley. Hey, wait a minute, I kind of like that. I might change it to that. Apparently no one likes Randy, but we'll go with Leviticus. All right, so Levi, also known as Matthew, He's at Capernaum. This is kind of his headquarters. It's interesting. Jesus walks by. He sees him sitting at the tax office and says to him, follow me. Follow me. So Matthew, Levi, he's a Jewish tax collector. Another phrase you'll see for this in the different encounters, different, uh, the, in, uh, the other gospels, is that's called a publican. So he's a tax collector slash publican. Well, let me tell you who those people were. Basically, they had a license to steal. They were Jews, but they worked for the Romans against the Jews. The Romans gave them a quota. Let's say it's $1,000. Use whatever they collected their money in. You got $1,000 a week. Everything else you collect above that, you get to keep. That'd be a nice commission, wouldn't it? You'd be motivated to steal, to cheat, to do whatever you want, and that's what they did. They would go to the wealthy Jews and say, now look, the wealthy Jews would give them a bribe of a certain amount, much lower than what their taxes would have been, and then they would go, the, pub, the publicans, the Matthews of the world, would then go to the poorer people and do what? Tax them out the wazoo till they got everything they could. And they kept everything over their quota of $1,000, whatever their quota was. They got to keep it all above that. They were all wealthy. They were all charlatans. They were all legal thieves. So were they well-liked by the populace? No, they weren't. Everything he collected literally had carte blanche, did whatever he wanted. And if he had any problems, guess who was there to back him up so make sure they got their money? The Roman military. Were they going to cross them? Of course not. So he had the Roman military there. If he needed any help, just say, look over there. And he literally had a license to steal. That's who Matthew was. They were, they were referred to in the documents of the day as, quote, the scum of the earth. They were called traitors, unholy, unclean. They basically were robbing the poor to get whatever they wanted. If, they, if Matthew, as a publican slash tax collector, were to go to the synagogue to offer his tithe, they would not accept it. Now, have you ever seen a preacher that would turn down money? They wouldn't take his money. They considered it dirty, unclean. They would not Accepted. If there, if he was called into court to testify in the Jewish court or before the Sanhedrin, he could not testify. They would not accept him because he was a thief and a liar. He could not testify. They were hated. They were classified as with the murders, the murderers, the robbers, the considered the worst of the criminals. They were hated more so than even Rome because they were Jews working for Rome. Their families were ostracized, many times excommunicated, not allowed to be in synagogue. The rabbis would refer, refer to them this way. Publicans are, quote, without hope. Without hope. So Jesus goes to one of these publicans, verse 14. He's sitting at the tax office. What's he doing sitting at the tax office? You ever seen the movie Christmas Carol? Or if you're really a Christian, you'll watch Scrooge the musical with Albert Finney. And what's, what's Scrooge just doing all the time? Count of money. Why? How much money does it take to make a rich man happy? Just a little bit more. I can see Matthew doing that. Levi saying, "Well, I got a. I didn't get quite enough from old uh, 
Alpheus down the street. I'll just go down and steal a little more from him. And so Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Follow me. And notice, Jesus looked at a man that the rest of his society, including the spiritual leadership of the Pharisees, referred to him as scum of the earth and, quote, without hope. What does Jesus see in him? Same thing he saw in you and me when he saved us. Because the Bible puts it this way, prior to our conversion, we were without hope. Then Jesus saved us, and what do we have now? My favorite word in the Bible to describe Christianity is we have hope. Confident expectation, because Jesus changed us. So he goes to Matthew, the guy nobody else wanted anything to do with, the one nobody would spend any time with. Jesus himself says, follow me, I'll give you hope. Now, Jesus, just by the very fact he hangs out with this publican, this tax, we're going to say it's going to get worse in a moment, he would be ostracized. He would be considered unclean for hanging out with them. I hope you begin to see a picture here. Who did Jesus come for? We're going to see in a moment, who did he come for? Those who were sick. Was Matthew sick? Were you sick? I know I was. Jesus came for the sick. And the ones who are willing to admit that they're sick. Look at verse 14. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me. He arose and followed him. The Matthew account of this says he left all. Now, just for a moment, pause and reflect. Matthew slash Levi gets up. Jesus says, follow me. He gets up. The gospel of Matthew tells us he left all and he followed Jesus. What did he leave? I just told you, what did he leave? A cushy job, a lot of money, anything he wanted he could buy, and he just got up and left it. Now, let's say he changed his mind. Is Rome going to hire him back? No. Are the Jews going to welcome him back? No. So he sees Jesus, Jesus says, follow me, and he says, I believe. And he followed him. That's what it means to get saved. Is that you say, I believe Jesus is everything he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. And I don't know what the future holds. What I do know is that he's got it. I'm going with him. I'm going with him. Even though I may not know what's down the road. I don't know what's down the road. He does. I can trust him. I can follow him. And he does. He just leaves it all behind. All that money prestige in the eyes of Rome, no prestige with the Jews, but he was wealthy. Interesting. Jesus' first four disciples we saw earlier were fishermen from Capernaum. And Matthew, I love this picture. So Jesus has got, so far what we've seen, he's got four guys and they're all fishermen in Capernaum. Where does Matthew work? He's a tax collector in Capernaum. Do you think that he'd probably gone to them and taxed their catch? I promise you he had. He's probably sitting waiting there when the boat came in. Saying, okay, you owe me this much. So now Jesus says, boys, we're going to have a meeting tonight. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to get together and eat chicken after church tonight. And guess what? I got a new member for us. It's your old buddy Levi, the tax collector. Now they're thinking what? What what are you doing? Do you know who he is? Here he is, boys. It's your new friend. 
I love when you, when you just stop for a moment and think. Because Jesus had to teach him a whole lot, didn't he? Even, even the last night Jesus is on the planet in the upper room while they're sitting around and he's teaching them and, and they're sharing the, we're going to celebrate communion later today and they're sharing together as he institutes the Lord's Supper. And even in that, in, in that moment, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest. Got to get their, maybe call their mama in on it and see if she can help. Jesus has to say, don't quit worrying about him. You just trust me. Trust me. So Matthew says, okay. Now verse 15. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many, please do not miss that word, many tax collectors and sinners also sat together, miss that phrase, please don't miss that phrase, sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, there were many, and they followed him. For just a moment, let's, let's think back for a second what we were just talking about. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're there with Jesus. said, we're going to go eat dinner at Matthew's house. They go to Matthew's house to eat dinner, and the place is jam-packed with tax collectors. Can you see, can you see Peter and Andrew and James and John? They're turning to each other saying, what have we gotten into? It's not just one tax collector. He's hanging out with a whole room full of them. Remember, the mind of a Jew, tax collectors and sinners were what? Scum. We don't hang out with them. He's not only hanging out with one, we might be able to hide one. The room is full of them. What have we gotten into? They're following Jesus. Notice the scene. Verse 15. Many quote, sat together with Jesus, dining in Matthew's house, and Jesus' disciples. So get that picture. What Jesus is offering to them is a culture that's totally different than what they've known. They're going to be identified as a follower of Christ, and they're going to be persecuted for that. But they're going to have an intimacy with the Son of God that that no one can even explain. They'll try. They won't really get it till after the resurrection. But boy, they get it then. In my life and your life, that's when we get when we finally understand that he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And he sets me free, raises me to new life in him to live. He's going to offer them an acceptance they've never understood. I was sharing, I think with my Wednesday night class, I was sharing this week about having two siblings, an older brother and younger brother that are not believers. Same blood, grew up together, yet I'm much closer to many of you and other believers, friends of mine that are believers than I am my own two siblings. Why is that? Because there's a bond that Christians have in the Holy Spirit that you don't understand if you're not born again. These guys are going to experience that. They're going to see Jesus do things that just stagger the mind to think about. They got to be there. Think about this, they get to see a man walk on top of water. They get to see a man walk up to a cemetery full of dead people and call one guy out, Lazarus, and he just comes forth. Just staggering stuff that they're going to see. Now, they're not there yet, 
They're in this room full of tax collectors and sinners thinking, where is the back door? And maybe we can lie. Maybe this is not what we think it is. Wonder what they were doing. Many followed him. I want you to notice the little phrase there, many, and the fact they sat together. I don't want you to miss that. Verse 15 again. He's dining at many, and he sat together. He's having fellowship with these people no one else would fellowship with. Jesus said, I will. I will fellowship with him. Verse 16. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is the first mention of Pharisees in the book of Mark. And it literally means the ones who are separate, the ones who are the detached ones. They consider themselves separate and better than everyone else. They were self-righteous to the core. Paul talks about in Philippians because he was one of them. That when it came to the law, we did not sin. They considered themselves sinless when it came to the law because they interpreted the law the way they wanted to. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't do this. They were like, that's right. And then Jesus said, I tell you, if you even think about it, you're guilty. What? If you even think about it, you're guilty. And once you're guilty of one, you're guilty of the whole thing. Because Jesus wanted them to understand, you're not righteous. You never will be. But I'll give you righteousness in me. You can never be self-righteous. But I can declare you righteous in me. I mean, it blew their mind. That's why they had him crucified. Because he was, he was about to destroy everything they had built with his teaching, his doctrine. He was so different. You know what's so sad about that? The self-righteousness of the Pharisees? Is that they knew the law backwards and forwards and totally missed the meaning of it. They knew the, the prophets, totally missed what the prophets were talking about. They sang the psalms, chanted them all the time, totally missed what they were talking about. They were so self-absorbed and so focused on their own religion, the way they looked at it, they created it. They missed the God of Scripture when he's sitting right there in their midst. I am the son of man. I am the one Daniel was talking about. Later on, Jesus will say to them, before Abraham was, I am the phrase that God gave to Moses in the burning bush. This is my name. Jesus said, by the way, I existed before Abraham. I am the I am of the bush. I am the I am of Pharaoh. I am the I am who's walked in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I am the I am who parted the Red Sea. I am the I am who created the universe. They're like, whoa, he's claiming to be God. Ooh. And so they went to the Romans and said, he claims to have another king, not Caesar. You need to get rid of him. Gutless and spineless. But boy, we're righteous. We're righteous. So Jesus, they're incensed. He eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Three times the phrase is used. I want to quote you from a parable of this: the words of Jesus Christ. Just listen. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. 
He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. Then he came to the second, and he said, likewise. And he answered and, he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. But which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and sinners, ta- excuse me, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you Pharisees. Whoa. For John came to you, the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent or repent and believe him, end quote. You see what Jesus was saying to these guys who were totally self-righteous? Jesus said, just to tie the two together, you know, these tax collectors and these sinners and these prostitutes that you look down on, they're going to heaven and you're not. Whoa. Whoa. What do you say about, what's that say about their religion? Wasn't worth much, was it? That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you see the Pharisees over there? You see how they pray? Don't pray like them. Remember now, who were the Pharisees? They were at the top of the ladder. The top of the ladder. And it was a big gap between the next rung. Don't pray like them. See how they give their alms? Don't give like them. See how they fast? So you can see, don't give like them or don't fast like them. Here's why. They, did, they fast, they give, and they pray so you'll see them and will go, whoa. And you know what? That's all the reward they're ever going to get. Don't be like them. When you pray, you get alone with your father. When you give, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. And when you fast, you just get alone and do it with your father. They're doing it to be seen by men. That was their religion, to be seen by men and to, and to control men. And Jesus said, they have their reward. Do not be like them. Verse 17, when Jesus heard what they said about him eating with tax collectors and sinners, notice what he says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I did not come, remember the context, what we've been talking about. I did not come for people who think that they're righteous. I came for people who know that they're sick. How did you get saved? You realize, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I've told you many times, and I was 16 years old, and I can still visualize myself sitting in that little wooden church chair at 6311 Poplar upstairs in the room. It's now Kirby Woods Baptist. I can take you to the room. I can take you to the spot and show you the little wooden chair. I'm sure it's not there anymore that I sat in when a guy introduced me for the first time to what the gospel really meant. And I'm thinking, oh, I need that. And I'd been in church my whole life. I need that. No one had ever told me that Jesus died for me. I was just told, be a good boy. Do the best you can. That's self-righteousness. And I was in church every Sunday. Jesus said, I came for the people who realize they're sick. I'm help- the thief on the cross. I love that picture. What do you say to Jesus? Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? In other words, I'm, I'm, without, I'm out of hope. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. 
He knew he was sick. What did he tell the other thief? We deserve to be here. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. And he turned to Jesus. Notice the logical argument, and we're going to be done. Jesus said, the sinners are sick. They admit it. They seek the physician. They know they're sick. They admit it. And they seek the physician. I love that. Because here's what Jesus is saying. You rabbis think you've got it. You Pharisees think you've got it all together. These tax collectors and sinners are wiser than you because you don't think you need any help. And they know they need help. So they go to the physician who can help them. It'd be like being sick. And you realize when they told me I had a problem with my heart and it needed to be fixed or I would die, what was my response? I don't worry about it. My response was, I remember I was talking to my cardiologist this week. I went to see him. We were talking about it, and I said, the day he, the other cardiologist told me I had to have open-heart surgery, you know what my question was? I, I'd never been sick. I'd never been in the hospital. And so I said to him, hey, if you had to have open-heart surgery, who do you want cutting on you? And he gave me a name. That's who I went to. Because I knew I was sick. I knew I needed help. That's all Jesus is saying. These guys realized they came. Now, not, maybe not everybody get the dinner. There's a lot of them. But he's saying to them, these people knew. One last point, and then we're done. In the other account of this, we're not going to go there. We'll do it next week. But in the other account of this, over in Matthew, Jesus not only gives them a logical argument, he gives them a scriptural argument. We'll look at that next week. But I just want to end with this. He says to them, to the Pharisees over in Matthew, same account, Jesus says to them, quote, go and learn. Go and learn. And that phrase was a rabbinic term to say to them, you need to study up. And then he quotes Hosea and Amos and some of the prophets. He says, you guys are experts in the prophets, but apparently you don't even know what you've been reading. So go and learn. Not only logically do I meet their need, but scripturally I meet their need. You need to go and learn that the Son of Man is here. And will you repent and admit you're sick like these sinners? I hope so. you bow your heads, please? Just, just take a moment and bow your heads. In just a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together as we close out our service today. And here's what I want you to do as we go through that process. As you take the elements, just hold them, and then we will take them together at the end. And you do not have to be a member of or attend Christ Church to share the Lord's Supper with us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome. It's his table, not ours. But as you hold those elements in your hand, think about the Son of Man, his blood, his body, that had he not come, you would have no hope, like Matthew and all those other tax collectors and sinners. But he did come. He did give his body. He did shed his blood so that I could have hope, you could have hope. 
And if you're born again and you've trusted Christ and you know you're a Christian, that as you take the elements, you think about, all right, how can I honor Jesus? How can I be what he wants me to be? Just take that time and pray. Hold the elements and pray, and then we'll take them together at the end. And as you get the elements, just pass them to each other and hold them. And then we'll take them together at the end. Let me pray, and then we will enter in the time of the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that Jesus did come, that he shed his blood. He had his body broken for us, that we might be born again. Without him, we have no hope, but with him, we have all hope. We just thank you for the blood, the body. We pray two things, Lord. We would remember, always remember what Christ did, and then we would go proclaim his death till he returns. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.